Hey guys, and we're back. Thanks for tuning in to the Mental Awareness Series on Shoot the Breeze with Alexandra Marie. On this season, we dive into different types of mental health topics, and we bring on some amazing people to talk about their mental health experiences. So today on the show, we are joined by Councilman Bergson Lenius of East Orange, New Jersey, 3rd Ward. Welcome, welcome to Shoot the Breeze with Alexandra Marie. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Good, good. So, you guys, we have Councilman Bergson Lenus. Lenius, yes, correct. Awesome. Okay, so why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Um, yes. Uh, so first and foremost, thank you for having me. Um, you know, it's a pleasure, uh, you know, to be here and to be, you know, um, selected by you and, and chosen to you know, represent for uh, our people, my constituency, you know, today. And uh, I'm excited. So my name is uh, Berg Selenius. Everybody calls me Berg uh, for short. You know, it's, um, it's a moniker that friends and family call me that, that just basically, not everyone just calls me that. Um, I don't think a lot of people know how to pronounce my first name. So, you know, it just kind of works. <laughs> so, um, uh-huh. you, know, uh, you know, my parents were born to Haitian immigrants. Uh, my parents both came to this country, um, albeit separately, they came separately. Um, you know, they met in the city of East Orange. Um, you know, fell in love, got married, had four boys. I'm the second of four children, Mm. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, my journey is, um, you know, one like many other first-generation immigrants, you know, parents came to this country again, they not not speaking a word of English, not knowing the culture at all, and, um, you know, having to adjust and learn, um, you know, what it's like to be uh, an immigrant in America. Right. And, um, and as the children of immigrants, you know, my brothers and I was a struggle for us, you know. Um, you know, again, our first language was not English, even though we were born and raised here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so we learned our the English language from school. Um, you know, our parents work, you know, just like much like most Haitian parents can attest, most Haitian children can attest, parents work two, three jobs each just to make sure that we had the, uh, you know, necessities of life and the resources that we needed. And, um, you know, uh, I, even though we grew up, um, I would say, you know, in poverty, I never felt like I needed anything or wanted anything because, you know, my, our parents just really provided, you know, made sure that we had, you know, a roof over our head, food in our bellies, and, um, you know, just a lot of the love and, um, and a lot of, uh, you know, the the, you know, God and, and all of the other resources that a child needs to, you know, strive in this society. So, um, right. you know, so, the, the, you know, that's my early story, um, <laughs> you know, okay. uh, went through, um, you know, went through private school um, pretty much my whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, parents worked two, three jobs just to make sure that we had privates, you know, private, uh, went to private school. Um, you know, we didn't have uh we, we used a lot of hand-me-down clothes. We didn't have cable. We didn't have all of those things that, uh, you know, the freshest sneakers that, you know, a lot of uh, our friends had. 
Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, my parents were very big on education, most much like most Haitian parents are, uh, especially that generation. And, um, you know, so they, they prided and they basically pushed the narrative of school. And so uh, we went to private school, uh, graduated high school, freshman mm-hmm. year of college. Um, you know, I, um, I had my first daughter, actually. Uh, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going through it a little bit. Let me. Tell you <laughs> it's you. okay. We'll get there. We'll get there. No worries. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, so I became a family man at a very young, very, very young age. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I always had a love for community, always had a love for children, always had a love for family. So it, it made me the man I am today, you know, going through those trials and tribulations of being a teenage father. Um, but I, again, I just had this drive and this inert um, uh, belief that um, I was meant to, to be here for a bigger purpose. So um, I was meant to help you know, our people, help my city. And mm-hmm. so I just continued to push the narrative. Um, and then I just started getting actively engaged in the community. Um, you know, I soon became a board member for the YMCA. I then became a, mm-hmm. a board member for the East Orange Board of Education, soon becoming its president. I then went and became a council person. And, nice. Um, that's right. Here I am today, seeking re-election. So that's right, and that uh, hints to my um, next question. So you are up for re-election. What is the pulse on the street? So there's a couple things. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I failed to mention that. Um, you know, there was a lot of first in my history. So when I became the president of the board of education. I became the first Haitian American ever appointed by, by the peers to the Board of Education presidency. And at the mm-hmm. time I was the youngest president as well. Um, I then again, fast forward, became the first Haitian American ever elected to office when I became the councilman of the third ward. Um, so one of the things that I, I've seen in the community, especially now that I'm in campaign season, is that people are very appreciative of my hands-on approach. People are um, very appreciative, appreciative of my availability and my visibility. Mm-hmm. And um, they just really believe and they know that I'm there and I'm fighting for them. So whenever I go there, whenever I'm knocking on doors, um, you know, you have people from the Haitian community who are very proud of how I represented. You have people from the Caribbean community who are very proud of how I represented. You have people um, of just the um, greater East Orange community are just very proud of how I represented the youth are also proud that I'm there, you know, um, because that's a big part of my platform, um, you know, and uh, our seniors as well. I, I, I haven't forgotten them. I've been pushing since day one for our seniors in our, in our third ward. So the pulse has been very, very positive, um, you know, and it's just from different angles, but overall East Orange, I think they're very happy with the pr- progress that, um, you know, we've made here in the third ward that uh, Mayor Green has made and that we have done collectively as a council. So the pulse has been very, very, very positive. I believe it. I, I see the Instagram post and I see how you are out there in the community, knocking on doors. I saw you um, recently at a barber shop. Tell me a little bit about that. Oh yeah, yeah, you know, I, um, uh, I am a big supporter and a proponent of supporting local businesses. Mm-hmm. So um, as far back as I can remember, um, you know, people always ask me, man, why do you go to these stores in East Orange? Or why do you support East Orange? You know, and, and I always tell them if, if I don't, who is, you know? Um, 
So, because I, I don't believe other people from other communities are coming into East Orange to shop. So it's uh, incumbent upon us and, and very, you know, very much uh, needed for us to support our own. It's very much needed to support the businesses in the city of East Orange. So uh, that's a local barbershop that I patron. Uh, it's called Billionaire's Barbershop right on the corner of Main Street. Uh, the barber there, his name is uh, Manny. He uh, supported, he purchased two masks, um, lead with lineage masks that I've been selling for the uh, past few uh, few weeks and, uh, you know, Bike for Berg t-shirts. So he supported heavy. And, um, you know, he asked me to take a picture with him. So I came in to take a picture with him. So that, that's what you saw there. Nice, nice. Love it, love it. So what's the biggest challenge you have as a councilman and how are you going to overcome it? The, the biggest challenge is always um, making sure that the communication is, is always flowing, you know, both ways. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I've always seen is that we, we send out mailers we send out, you know, via social media, we send out posts about community meetings and things like that. And, you know, we'll probably have uh, 50 people at the meeting, mm. um, you know, but, but if, uh, if I were to put out that I'm having a movie night in the park, I'll probably have 300 people there. So right. um, one of the biggest challenges is just making sure that we can get to people to understand the importance of the community meetings the importance of their voice and, um, you know, and the importance that they intend. So, you know, one of the things that we, we've just been working on creative ways to get people to make sure that they attend these meetings. It's, uh, you know, we've been working on creative ways uh, to, to boost the attendance, obviously. Um, but, you know, we gotta, again, meet them where they're, where people are at. So we're even more engaged, like next Saturday, my council partner and I, my council colleague, Vernon Pullins Jr. We're going to a um, this duplex, uh, this complex, excuse me, this gated community that we have here in the third third ward, and we're going to have a community meeting right there in their parking lot, um, you know, because we want to make sure that everyone's voice is heard, that everyone has an opportunity to say and speak their their mind, and so that's what we're going to be doing. We're just going to be going to different buildings in the city, um, you know, meeting them in the lobby, saying, "Hey, we're down here from six to eight. Please come meet us," you know, because it's just very important to us. And to me, um, that we make sure that the communication is flowing. And so that that's the, the biggest challenge is thinking and coming up with creative ways to meet people and have, make sure that their voices are heard. I love the boots on the ground mentality. I think that's a really good attitude to have, especially for our young people of color. They need to see us, actually, Perfect. you know, for them to get involved. So I, I absolutely do love that. Correct, thank you. So what is one thing you wish you had known when you began your career as a councilman? That's a great question. Um, one thing that I wish I had I learned, um, you know, when I first began my journey as a councilman is um, the amount of meetings that I would be attending. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, uh, I, I've been in the public um, aspect or public sphere from uh, oof, since, since a young age, you know, um, since the age of like 24, maybe. Mm -hmm. I've been dealing with public entities and, um, you know, dealing in a public space. 
Um, but you know, there was a lot of things behind the scenes that I did not know. So as the run, as the board of education president, we attended a lot of meetings, but those meetings were just primarily centered around education. Mm. But when I became a council person, the, um, uh, you know, it, it expanded in terms of, you know, the scope of what I do. So I'm, I'm attending meetings about public safety. I'm attending meetings about health and education. I'm attending meetings about business development. I'm attending meetings about redevelopment. I'm attending meetings about, um, you know, uh, public works, you know, so, so now I'm attending a lot of different meetings because as a council person, I'm one of the leaders of the city. My, my nine other colleagues and the mayor, we are the leaders of the city. And um, so I'm attending meetings on, on just about every single aspect of the city. And I think that I didn't, I, I knew that, but I wasn't really prepared for it. So we, we do have a lot of meetings. They're very productive. I love them. I wouldn't trade them for the world, but that was something that I did not, was not prepared for. <laughs> so you said you wouldn't trade it for the world. So if you knew that back then, would you have decided not to be a council person? No, no, it actually um, would have just helped my transition much better. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, no, this is a passion of mine. There, there's nothing or no one or, or anyone, excuse me, that, that would make me change um, you know, this, this life of mine. I, I love being a council person. I love um, engaging with the people. I love the boots on the ground. Um, I love the opportunities that it affords me in terms of meeting different people of different cultures meeting the young people, meeting the elderly, meeting the homeowners, meeting the tenants, the, the renters, um, you know, just the business owners. It, it just gives me an opportunity to just really be engaged because I, I feel like I'm, I've, my experience has provided me with the, um, you know, proper resources and uh, to really make a change. And, um, you know, and, and, you know, through my time on council um, and beyond, you know, you're gonna see that come through to fruition. Okay, so if you had one piece of advice to someone just starting out their political career, what would it be? Go hard. Okay. That's, that's it. Simply put, go hard. You know, this, uh, this life is, um, the, there are no barriers to public service in terms of, you know, your will. So, you, you know, there are no age requirements, there are no income requirements. There's no experiential requirements. It just requires you to go hard and go for the right reasons. And if you can do those things, if you can go hard and you go for the right reasons, um, you know, you'll be extremely successful. It's when you try to um, be timid, it's when you try to, um, you know, be indecisive um, that, that things, you know, usually don't go your way. But once you commit and you go hard, I promise you sky's the limit. So speaking about going hard and um, sky's the limit, what is your biggest failure and what did you learn from it? Um, up to this point, um, you know, I, I ran twice for council actually, the first time I lost. Um, and when I lost, um, you know, I, I, um, I learned that, you know, that not every, everything is gonna go your way. You know, not everything is going to go your way. Um, you know, you can go hard, you know, as I, st I stated, mm -hmm. um, you know, you can, you can be the nicest person on earth. You can be the smartest person on earth, um, but not necessarily not everything is always going to go your way. 
So I, I learned that, you know, that it's okay to lose as long as you learn something from it. Um, I learned that it's okay to, to be defeated in terms of, you know, that particular battle, but the war, there's a bigger war out there and it requires a lot more attention. So you can lose some battles, but you know, the war is the bigger prize and you know, you just have to kind of keep focus on that. So I, you know, that's, that's the biggest lesson that I would say is that in every loss, there is a, a lesson and um, you know, you just gotta make sure that you uh, understand the lesson that you apply the lesson and you master it. So speaking on you running twice and you lost the first time, what did you find was the best resources that helped you along the way to victory? Um, again, boots on the ground. Um, I think that that first taste of defeat um, just required me and made me, these, you know, understand that I have to go even harder. Um, when I first ran, um, I was, you know, I was known people, a lot of people knew me, um, but I was pretty much known in the education sector because of, um, I was also, on, again, I was on the board of education at the time. So um, it taught me that I have to expand. Then I um, started, you know, working with a lot of the nonprofits, the local nonprofits, the local churches. And I really started to work with them, um, you know, on my, on my private time, uh, you know, creating partnerships. And that, um, you know, basically afforded me, um, you know, the opportunity to get in front of more people. And once I had the opportunity to get in front of more people, I had an opportunity to hear a lot of their concerns. So then I used those concerns as my platform for the next time that I ran. And then I used, you know, because I had a couple of years to think about it and to really formulate an idea, formulate plans of what I would like to do when I, when I, you know, when I did become elected. And so um, that, that was something that, that really, you know, helped me in terms of, you know, losing the first time and, and what I did, you know, going forward. So what is one of the, common myths about being a councilman that you would like to debunk? One of the things that people, um, you know, that I would love to debunk is that um, I am not a machine. Um, I am human. Uh, I make mistakes. Um, I, am, I am not perfect. Uh, you know, the, the only perfect being is God. Um, and so, you know, we are imperfect beings here on earth. We are in, in God's image, but we are not God. So um, people, you know, a lot of people, a lot of residents, you know, they'll, they'll call and they'll say, hey, how come you weren't here on this day? And I, you know, and I say, ma'am, you know, I wasn't, or sir, I wasn't aware of it. But now that I know, I'm going to make sure that we correct it going forward. And I think that, you know, they just expect me to know everything or expect me to be everywhere. And that's not the case. You know, I, I've dedicated my life to my city. I dedicated my life to, to my people, um, but I am not perfect. And, you know, some things will fall, you know, some things may not get done in a timely manner, but um, I can assure you that I'm doing my best and I'm working always to, um, you know, make sure that we, we have 100% results, but it's just not always gonna happen. So I think right. that, um, 
you know, most people think, ah, you know, you're a council person. I pay mm -hmm. your salary. You know, that's <laughs> pay. I voted you in. And so uh -huh. you, you have to be perfect. And um, yeah, no, that, that is not the case. And I'll, and I'll tell anybody who, who even says anything like that, um, that I'm not perfect. And if, and if you expect me to be perfect, then I'm not the person for you. But if you want somebody who's going to work hard for you, if you want somebody who's going to have your best interests at heart, if you want somebody who will always fight, always fight for the third warden for the city of East Orange and for the Haitian people, for the African people, for, for everyone, for the elderly, for the young, if you want that person who's going to fight for everyone, then that's what you're going to find in me. So um, it's Pride Month, um, and I, I'm not really familiar with East Orange. Uh, I know we spoke and I told you uh, my son lives there half of the time. So mm -hmm. what is East Orange going to do for Pride Month? Or at least what's the third ward going to do for Pride Month? Um, I'm, I'm a big uh, supporter of, of, you know, the Pride Month, um, you know, in, in the, the community, the LGBTQ community. Um, we are having our annual flag raising on June 25th. Um, you know, it is uh, uh, being uh, sponsored by um, obviously the city of East Orange, Mayor Green and city council, but um, it's uh, being, um, you know, developed through, her name is Lene Grant, who is uh, my sister. And, um, you know, I just want to say a big, give a big shout out to her uh, through the recreation department, through Mr. Pearson and uh, Stanley Edwards. And uh, it's something that we've done. I, I want to say, um, when we embarked on this journey, maybe five or six years ago, we were the first municipality to have one um, mm. at the time. Yeah, nice. so, um, and I was a part of all, I've been a part of all of them in the planning stages and, and things like that. So, um, and I've attended all of them. Um, uh, so I think except for last year, excuse me, you know, because of the pandemic, but uh, I've attended four of the past five or five of the past six. So. I'm a big supporter of the community and, um, you know, and they're big supporters of mine. And so, um, you know, I just want to make sure that we continue to um, provide resources so that no, all members of the city of East Orange um, are, feel like they have, you know, a bite at the apple and that they are part of the city. So because things are lightening up, there's going to be a, a flag raising this year. Yes. June 25th. Okay. okay. Awesome. Awesome. Oh, yeah. Well, right on the steps of City Hall. Um, you know, I'll make sure you get a, you know, an invite as well. But yeah, it's going to take place on June 20th. Oh, yeah. Make sure you email me that. I could definitely post it and let everybody know I will definitely be there. I will. I will. <laughs> and, you know, I always say, too, it's not just about, um, you know, raising a flag. You know, there are some real issues and concerns mm -hmm. um, in, in the LGBTQ community. Yes. Um, you know, and we have to make sure that we address them head on, you know, and it's not just waving the flag. It's about actually sitting at the table. Of it's course. actually about, you know, just making sure that um, voices are heard. And, you, and you, you'll hear me say that many times throughout this interview, because I'm a strong proponent and advocate of making sure that every single person in our city has their voice heard and that they do not feel left out. So let's talk about family a little bit. Uh, you had mentioned you being a, a, you were a young teen father. So let's talk about your mental state. How was your mental state having two children before you were 22, correct? 
Yes, that is correct. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so let's talk about your mental state then, you know, anxiety, anything like that, that that's going on. Because as you know, a lot of our people are young parents. And especially now with the pandemic, there's more going on mentally. So I definitely would like to hear how your mental state was as a young father. Great question. Um, so 22 year old Berg um, did not understand or could not articulate the feelings that he was going through at that time. Uh, 40 year old Berg, I can tell you as I look back on that period, um, I was scared. Um, I was scared, um, nervous, um, depressed, um, you know, and, and just not sure what was going to happen, you know, to my young family and I. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I can tell you that, you know, I had people who were um, in my corner who pushed me um, to ensure that I did not fail. Um, people who pushed me, that gave me advice, that spoke on me, um, whether it be religious leaders, whether it be educators. Um, my mentor, his name was Dr. Edwin McCampbell at the time. Um, you know, my parents, you know, just people who just made sure that I would not fail. And without that support, um, I, I don't know what I would do or what I, where I would be without them. Um, mm -hmm. Because again, I didn't understand it at the time, but mm -hmm. they helped me emotionally, spiritually, and mentally. And I, I obviously couldn't articulate that. And I didn't, I couldn't articulate my feelings, um, but I needed that at that time. You know, I needed to know that um, what I was doing was right. Um, I needed to know that no matter what I do, as long as I stay focused to God and I stay focused to my family, um, you know, that everything else was going to fall into place. Because I would always say, don't worry, you know, God, God's going to protect us. Because we didn't know when our next meal was going to be. We didn't know, you know, the next, um, you know, our clothes on our backs. Um, you know, we didn't know, we didn't have the medicine. You know, my daughter was, um, you know, sick at a young age. Um, I didn't know how to, I was gonna afford medication uh, for my daughter for, um, you know, the because a lot of the insurance companies didn't um, approve the medication at the time. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't know how I was gonna afford school for them. Um, you know, all of those things, but I, I knew God was gonna help me. Um, God was gonna provide um, and, the people in my corner helped me believe that. And I took that belief and I just kept on, you know, just pushing through, pushing through, pushing through. And then now as an adult, you know, I was, I mean, I was an adult 22, but as a seasoned veteran now, I look <laughs> back and I say, oh, that's what depression is. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's what anxiety feels like. Oh, that's what fear looks like. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and I faced it head on and, um, you know, I, I just did my best. So you speak about depression. I know you have, you just recently had a major transformation. Do you think that that time period contributed to your weight gain? Because I, I saw you post pictures of you when you were young and you weren't a big boy, you were really slender. So do you think that um, time period of being a young father, having two kids at before you were 22 and being depressed and having anxiety contributed to your weight gain? 
That's a great question. Um, I, I don't, I don't, um, I've never even thought about it that actually. Um, I, I can't say that was completely the reason, but I'm sure it had an effect on me. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I'm sure it did, but I can't say that was completely the reason. I, I just think that, you know, a lot of times we get comfortable in um, whatever it is that we're doing. And because of that comfortability, you know, we, we get lazy, mm -hmm. you know, we get complacent and we get lazy. And I think more than anything, I was just battling laziness. And I just allowed myself to get out of control. And I just kept saying, I'll start tomorrow. I'll start tomorrow. But there was never a tomorrow. I just kept eating and eating and eating. Mm -hmm. And as you stated, um, I remember I was uh, at 19. I was probably 215 soaking wet. Mm. Um, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a tall, taller person over six foot. So mm -hmm. I look like a string bean. And then by the time I was 30, I was easily 350 pounds, easily. Wow. So, so you can imagine if I'm 215 and, you know, so I gained roughly 140 pounds in about 10 years, you know, that's like an average of 10 pounds a year, mm -hmm. you know, but I think it was more so laziness. And I do believe that anxiety and depression and things like that, because I had a lot of pressure placed on me at a young age, because, um, Again, you know, we talked about having two children before 22. I had four children by the time I was 26. Oh. So it was a lot of pressure on me as a young person to produce, you know, to make sure that my family was good. So um, I think all of those things played a part in the weight gain because it was a tremendous weight. Yes, yeah, stress does contribute a lot to, to weight gain. Definitely. So being a child of Haitian immigrants, just immigrants in general, and being um, first generation, mm -hmm. I know your parents aspired for you to do a lot and, you know, be someone, which you are right now, but how did they feel about you being a teen father? How did they feel about me being a teen father? Right, right. You know, they, they come to this country, um, and you know, all, all immigrant parents, oh, my child's going to be a doctor. My child's going to finish school, do all of that, then have a family. But then you were a teen father. How, how did your parents feel about that? Yeah. And I'm sure, you know, you know, like all legalese, like, yes, <laughs> uh -huh. school, school, home and church. And <laughs> I was, uh, as a teenage father, I, it was not taken very lightly. Um, it was something that, you know, um, my parents were very, very, very upset with me. Um, you know, especially my, my mother, um, who was just completely and utterly disappointed. My father was um, utterly disappointed in me. And I think that hurt more than any type of uh, screaming that could have been done or, or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I was, uh, I had to, you know, I left the house, you know, I was put out the house at the time. Um, really? So I had to, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, you know, very strict parents, you know, Haitian um, conservative background. And, um, you know, it wasn't taken very lightly. Um, but through it all, I think the thing that hurt me most was seeing a disappointment on um, my father's face. 
um, that really hurt me. Um, and I and I know that um, the fact that he was hurt, it just kind of, you know, it also actually in a way motivated me to make sure that, um, you know, that I was not a statistic, that I did mm -hmm. not become a failure, that, you know, that I was, you know, become a success, um, you know, quote unquote. So having um, Caribbean Haitian parents, did you suffer from the culture of not speaking and simply being asked to uh, get over it or expected to get over it, meaning your feelings? Yes, um, I think that um, all, you know, especially, um, you know, anyone from the Caribbean, um, you know, the immigrant population, um, um, you know, we're, we're not provided the same resources um, that, you know, you may have here in this country. So I think that, you know, we're told to just bottle up our feelings. We're told to bottle up um, anything that really matters to us. I'm told to bottle up our voices. And uh, it's something that I know that I was definitely told to do. And I'm not in any way, shape, form, or fashion disparaging, um, you know, my upbringing or my parents. But um, you know, they they didn't know any better. You know, they they were um, raised that way, and they raised us the only way that they knew how. Mm -hmm. And so, by them carrying on that tradition, um, uh, you know, they they passed it down to our generation. So, you know, I, I was just, I, I didn't understand. And I, and, you know, and I spoke earlier about my feelings. I couldn't articulate it because I was never taught how to articulate. Right. Um, I was never shown that, you know, I could still be um, a man and I'll also have emotions. Mm -hmm. You know, I was told that I had to be a tough guy. And, um, but I knew deep inside, I was like, no, nah, I actually do care about this. And I do feel, and I, and I do cry and I, and I do hurt. But um, I didn't know how to articulate it because I was told that those are the things that, you know, they don't make you a man. Um, and those things are a sign of weakness. Mm -hmm. And um, it, I didn't learn until um, I got older, until I started having children um, that, nah, you know, that's, that's not okay to keep everything bottled in. It's not okay not to express yourself. And, um, you know, through, and I, and I got to give them credit, my children, and I'm still learning to this day, 40 years old, you know, there's times where I, I might, whew, I might blow up or, or something like that. And then I come back and I think about it and I'm like, wow, you know, I probably shouldn't have done that. Um, but, you know, I, 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 um, I'm a work in progress, but, uh, on, on terms of expressing my feelings, mm -hmm. I didn't start doing that until I was an adult until I started having my, my children started expressing themselves. And then I would notice that I started to say and do the same things my parents did. And then I would like, whoa, let me take that back. And then I would speak to, you know, other people, people who had children, and then I would listen to what they had to say. And mm -hmm. then I would say, oh, wow, okay, you know, there's a better way. And there's a more articulate way for me to handle this. And that's, you know, kind of what I've been doing. And I'm still doing to this day, literally to this day, you know, now I have teenagers and I have a 20 plus year old, um, you know, so I'm still learning. Every stage is gonna require a different version of you. Right. And, and a different level of emotional understanding. And, um, you know, so I, I fail, but, you know, I'm still learning. And uh, just going back to my parents, I think that 
me now being able to speak to my parents on a on a equal level, they they um, understand that the things that maybe some of the things they could have done better. And I think that they're learning in their late seventies. So it's a process and it's a continuation of an evolving process that you'll never be perfect at. Absolutely, absolutely. Having kids of my own and a teenage daughter, I totally agree. Uh, so you know, you know where my. <laughs> yes 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 and and i i grew up with uh trials and tribulations of of my own so um i i definitely do know i do understand um but we spoke a few weeks ago and you mentioned that you 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 not recently but you have seen a therapist before i want to know how was that received by your family and your friends you having to go to talk to someone else about your feelings and your emotions um i'm gonna be honest um uh, it's not something that i um i don't think i've i've had too many conversations about it mm. um you know i I've, I've expressed it to those who were like really close to me mm -hmm. um, and they were just happy that I took that step. Um, but I, I can't say that, like, I, I know I have not shared that with my parents. Um, ah, I see. You see, that's, that's not good. <laughs> hey, listen, we keeping it real over here. Um, I, I know I, I have not had an opportunity to speak to my parents about it. Um, I think the lessons from it I've shared with them and, um, you know, I've, I've spoken with them, but to downright say I've gone to therapy, I, I, I have not had that conversation with them. Do you think you will ever? I'm sure I will. I'm sure I will. Um, I just, uh, I don't know. I think that's a, um, that's something that that requires like a, a deeper conversation because it's going to require deeper diving, deeper conversations. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, you know, we, we've had deep conversations. And again, I, I share the lessons that I've learned, um, you know, and I apply the lessons that I've learned, but to straight up say, I've gone to therapy. I, I don't know. And I haven't, and I, you know, and I'm sure I will, but I just haven't had an opportunity. Okay. So throughout this interview, you've mentioned um, having to deal with anxiety. So how do you deal with anxiety or how have you dealt with anxiety in the past? Give our listeners um, some coping strategies that you may have used. When I was younger, um, I would go into a corner um, and I would shut out the world. Um, as, as, um, now that I, I, I'm older, um, you know, one of the things that I've done and, and I, and I did, again, this is like every evolving process, you know, it's an ever evolving process. Um, but there are times where I, I still may go into a corner and, and shut out the world, but I've also, um, cre adapted to and, uh, created, um, you know, writing. So I, I love to write. Um, mm -hmm. I love to just articulate different things. And journaling. so, you know, so I, yeah, so, so journaling and writing is something that I've picked up. And that's something that's really helped me um, because there are times where I just want to go into a corner. Um, and there are times where 
I just don't want to speak to anybody. And I'm not going to say I'm perfect, but mm-hmm. I, again, I'll never say that, but that that's something that's very big with me is writing and listening to music. Those mm-hmm. are the two things that, that basically have helped my life, you know, is writing and listening to music. They, they kind of help me go to another world. You know, they, there are no wrong answers when you're listening to music. There are no wrong answers when you're writing from your heart. You know, you just express yourself and you just go. And, you know, and that's something that, um, so those are two things and two coping strategies that if I were to give anyone advice, I would say, maybe just start writing, um, you know, maybe, um, you know, listening to music, um, you know, would help you picking up a hobby, will help you, um, you know, identify those things to help you, you know, focus on whatever, whatever it is that that's um, causing you anxiety and to help you overcome it. Absolutely. As a behavioral therapist, when I do take on older clients, as of right now, I'm just working with younger kids. I do stress journaling. Journaling is something that every therapist will tell their clients to do when they're dealing with any type of mental illness, mild or extreme. Mm. Yes. So have you ever had to deal with situational depression? I think, I think you said you, you had to um, having children at a young age. So how did you deal with that type of depression back then? I know now you say you write and you listen to music, but was it always just going into the corner when you were a young father? Were you still doing that or were you doing something else to deal with depression? I definitely was doing that. Um, um, I, I called it um, my fortress of solitude. Um, you know, you know, Superman. Um, you know, I was a big, an avid comic book reader. So oh, not, not bigger than me, but okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't say I was the biggest. I just said I was. I know. The I know. <laughs> so um, I was a a big um, an avid comic book reader. So. Um, you know, the Superman had his fortress, you know, and I was like, you know, if Superman, who's the world's strongest man, who is the world's most powerful man, mm-hmm. has this fortress where he goes to basically escape, to get away from everything. Mm-hmm. And I'm just a regular old human being here on earth, then then I think I deserve a fortress as well. And so I took that and I just would go into my fortress of solitude and I would just be by myself, even with the kids, even with my children. Um, and uh, they kind of knew daddy, daddy's alone time, you know, but they, little did they know that alone time was a coping mechanism that I used at the time to help me um, get over. And, and during that time, especially during that age, I, I, again, I used to read a lot of comic books. So I would just go into a corner, um, you know, close the, close the door, um, you know, and just read uh, comic books at the time. And that was like something that I did. Um, so, you know, that was, that was something that I did. Now, obviously, and as I got older, um, I just remember saying that it's not their fault. You know, it's in, and me doing that, it could give the false representation that they're the reason why 
um, I'm feeling this way. Right. And um, so it was something that as I, again, as I got older, it was a, you know, I was a teenage father. So it wasn't until I was like maybe 27 or something like that, that I said, wow, I, I can't do that. You know, I can't keep doing that whenever I'm feeling down or whether I'm not, I'm mm -hmm. feeling happy because um, they may feel like it's, they are the cause of it. Mm -hmm. And um, I wanted to make sure that they knew that they were not the cause of it. So I started to, again, pick up hobbies. I started to just um, do more things that I loved and it slowly started to dissipate. You know, um, you know, a lot of those the anxieties that I felt, I started to get more involved in the community because that's truly one of the things that make me happy. I started doing a lot more things with my children because those are things that I love to do. So I just started to focus more on the good than the bad. And um, when, when I started to do that, you know, my whole outlook and perspective changed. So you mentioned how your children would say to you, okay, daddy ha is having some alone time right now. Did any of your children ever come to you and ask you, were you upset with them? Did they do anything wrong? How do you think they felt about you having to go to the corner? Yes, um, I remember one time, um, and I'm sure she she would never remember this, um, but uh, my second oldest daughter, um, who who I've grown to realize is probably the most like me out of all my children. Um, you know, I just recall one time she just said, Dad, you okay? You know, are you upset? Did something happen? Um, you know, did, did we do something? And um, I just remember looking at her like, of course not, baby. Why would you say that? And she was like, I, I don't know. You know, and, and um, you know, it was just that innocence and that question that really started to open my eyes. And I go back to what I just said earlier that I said, um, you know, I kind of realized that it, it can give the false perception that they were the reason why or something they did and it was definitely not the case um so because of that you know whether it be you know financial problems at the time um issues with my my job um issues with family you know those are the things that weighed on me but it had nothing to do with them so i just wanted to make sure that they knew that and so i think my whole perspective changed all right children can definitely feel when we're carrying the weight on our shoulders. I know my three-year-old, he sometimes feels it and he'll come to me and he'll be like, mommy, are you angry? Like, <laughs> are you angry? <laughs> no, 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 I'm okay, you know, give me a hug. And he'll say, I think you're angry. <laughs> and and I, I'm not yelling or anything. And it's so funny. He won't even say like, are you sad? He, because I guess he knows, oh, mommy could get angry. So I think she's angry right now. <laughs> and, you know, you, we try, we try to hide it from them, but they just, they can sense it. And it's, it's hard. Oh man, listen, a lot of times, you know, children are your best therapists, you know, um, they, they're, um, they're emotionally, um, you know, uh, emotionally, spiritually, and like just in, in terms of intelligence, they're connected more than we think they are. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, especially because they come from, you know, come from us, you know, um, you know, the mother and the father. So they have a lot of our characteristics. They can sense when we're off. And, um, you know, so in that, you know, in that emotional connection that you have with your children, they can sometimes slap you back into reality. Um, and, and it doesn't have to be anything like that's like directly in front of you. It could be just in their innocence and it could be in their questioning. It could be in just how they look at you. And, and it just kind of just like, wow. It just kind of brings you to reality and go, wow. You know, why, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? Why am I behaving like this? Um, you know, I have this beautiful, beautiful baby in front of me um, questioning my, my um, you know, my, my attitude or questioning why I'm acting or behaving in a certain way. And, and through that innocence, it just kind of brings you back to reality. It gives, gut, it gives you a gut check sometimes, you know? Right. And I don't think they understand their power and they have that power to kind of just do that to, you know, to us adults. Yeah, especially when they sense something is wrong and they just come and give you a hug and you're Correct. like, oh, Correct. man, <laughs> like, and you want to stay upset, but you can't. <laughs> I, I'm going to tell you a story. So I remember... Um, I had to be about five years old, and um, uh, this is the first time I'm sharing this on on any show, but I had to be about five years old, and uh, I just remember my mother was in the room, and she closed the door, you know, she closed the door, and um, she was just in the room, and I went in there, and she was crying, and I said, mom, you know, I said, what's, what's wrong, mom, you know, you know, like, what's wrong, mommy? And she she looked at me with tears in her eyes and she said, oh, you know, my, uh, your grandmother passed away. And uh, I just remember going up to her and hugging her and I kissed her. And my mother, who is like not an emotional person, who's never really shown emotion to us, that was the first time that I feel like we connected. And, um, you know, just and just exactly what you said. I just I just remember hugging her and I remember the way she hugged me back. She never hugged me like that before. Um, and she told me that that was what she needed and that she loved me. And that was the first time that I can recall her even saying that she loved me. Um, mm. And, um, you know, and it was weird to me because I never heard that before from her. Mm-hmm. And, um, but it also stuck with me to this day, um, you know, because of the emotional connection that it provided to us. Right. I don't know what it is about Haitian parents. They just don't like saying that word. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I make sure I tell my son all the time, even when I buckle him in the car seat, you know, because I, I had accidents before and my, my, one of my biggest trauma is, oh my gosh, if something happens and I were to pass on, I don't want him to not know that I don't love him. So when he goes to sleep, I kiss him. I always tell my other when I put him in the car seat, I will like, if I forget, I will, I will literally pull over, come back around and hug him and give him a kiss before. Cause growing up, not hearing it, it's like, you just want to keep saying it just so you know, your children know that, you know, you love them. I mean, we had to grow up hearing, 
oh, you, you know, you're being fed. You have clothes on you. Of course we love you. But they never would say, I love you. It's always, mm -hmm. of course we love you. You know we love you. <laughs> I would want to hear I love you, though. That would be nice. Amen. And, um, you know, I, I make sure that, you know, I speak to my children and, um, you know, I tell them I love them and, and um, you know, things that I, that I knew my parents felt, um, they showed us as you stated, but they, they never articulate. And again, I, I don't blame them because I know that their, their parents before them never said it. So, you know, it's always incumbent upon us to, to break the cycle, you know, along the right. way. So, so. In your opinion, what are some ways Black women can help Black men regarding the stigma around being vulnerable? One way that Black women can um, help Black men? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because there is a stigma about men being vulnerable because we Black women are expected to be strong. Therefore our partners should be just as strong, if not stronger. So you are not to cry in front of us. You are not to tell us how you feel, you know? So in your opinion, how do you think we Black women can help Black men become more vulnerable so that maybe we can become more vulnerable as well? So I, I don't I don't feel like it's incumbent upon um, black women to um, make us understand and um, realize and actualize our vulnerability. Um, you know, I think that it's uh, you know it's a personal thing, but I, I do believe that um, you know we can be um, helped along the way. We can um, maybe be given some tools to help us, but I, I, I wouldn't put it all on the shoulders of black women, um, you know, because I feel like that's something that we tend to do in a society is to just dump on uh, all of our issues and our problems on, on black women and just say, hey, fix it. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and, and again, um, you know, th those shoulders, are, you know, of course they're broad and they're, they're, they're strong and, and, and we love our black women, but um, I think it's time that we as black men, um, you know, do, do for self and, and seek out our own therapy, you know, seek out, um, you know, ways to um, connect with um, our women on a deeper level, um, you know, but, but uh, I, I do believe that black men should be talking to black men um, about ways that we can support and carry and help our black women. Right, um, I love that, that. That's my mentality, you know, that's it's, good. it's, um, I think that me as an, um, you know, an OG in the game now, um, you know, I mentor a lot of black men, um, you know, young men and Latino men. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I talk to them about, you know, vulnerability. I talk to them about, you know, emotional uh, status and, and emotional state. And I just share with our black men and our Latino men that we have to step up. You know, right. we can no longer allow black women to be the end all cure all for, for all of our societal issues. Mm -hmm. um, because for far too long that's been happening and it's, and it's not right and it's not fair and we have to do our part. So it's, um, it's been heavy on my mind. Um, you know, I was uh, 
I'm speaking with uh, someone who's very close with me recently, and I was just sharing that it's been heavy on my mind to create a, a male mentorship program. Um, because, um, you know, I, I, again, I mentor a lot of black men, but I want to have a, a wider and broader reach. And I just want to push um, and educate and promote, um, you know, that the black man um, is human, right. that the black man can be vulnerable, that mm -hmm. the black man can be tired, that the black man can also be strong, and that the black man can and should be partnership with our black women to run our households. Having a son yourself, have you taught him the importance of vulnerability and asking for help when help is needed? Yes. Um, you know, he and I, we, we have, um, you know, conversations, but I think sometimes he gets a little uh, shy around me um, because, you know, I'm dad. Yeah. And so I'm like, you know, whether you talk to me or not, you know, if you don't feel comfortable, which, um, uh, you know, certain topics he feels comfortable with certain topics he doesn't. Um, so, so it's something that I, I encourage him to speak to someone, someone who's been experienced in the game. Um, you know, so that's something that's very important to me because I don't think that I'm the end all be all. And I definitely don't want it to get it from, um, friends of his who are just as inexperienced as he is, you know, mm -hmm. and trying to help him lead navigate. So I always encourage, um, whether it be myself or my brothers, um, you know, someone that can, you know, talk to him and meet him on, you know, his level, but also from an experiential perspective, um, you know, give him the proper guidance. But, uh, you know, I definitely, definitely have those conversations about being vulnerable. And, and um, he sees me enough to know that I'm, uh, I'm definitely, you know, um, uh, a proponent of being vulnerable and, and being, um, you know, present and, and being, you know, emotional when need be, you know, I don't hide my feelings from him. So he, he's around it and he sees it every day and he hears it every day. That's good. So before closing out the podcast with um, my two closing questions, is there anything you would like our listeners to know? Um, I'm going to say a few things. So, um, you know, one, just uh, say a prayer for me, you know, um, you know, I have my, this is my election year. Um, so I have uh, my primary election is on June 8th, which I'm sure this will air after that. So, um, you know, we'll have the primary, uh, assuming we get to the next step, um, you know, we'll have our uh, general election day, which is for all the marbles on November 2nd. And, um, you know, so I'm just encouraging everyone, um, no matter where you are in this country, to please vote. Um, you know, if, whether you're in East Orange, whether you're just in the state of New Jersey, whether you're in California, it doesn't matter. Please go out and vote. Um, we, we, uh, our ancestors died for that right. They died and fought so hard with jailed, beaten, bruised, raped. Uh, pillaged, houses burned down, um, uh, you know, there were laws created to keep you away from the voting booth. Mm -hmm. And um, still are. And there still are. And, you know, to this day, so there's modern, modern age uh, Jim Crow that's mm -hmm. taking place. And, and if it wasn't important, they wouldn't be trying to, to trick you or hide or suppress different things. 
And so that's how important it is. So when we decide not to vote, we are giving them the power that their power, and um, we need to make sure that we take back the power and keep it within ourselves and our communities. So, um, you know, no matter what you do, please vote. Um, I also want to say to, um, you know, my men that are listening, um, it's, it's okay, you know, you don't have to be perfect. Um, you don't have to be strong, uh, 365, 24 seven. Um, you know, it's okay to lean on others um, during those periods when you're not at your best. Um, and it's okay to express that as well. That doesn't make you less of a man. It doesn't make you less of a human being uh, to show, you know, vulnerability, to show emotion. And uh, quite frankly, um, it makes you more of than less than. And, um, you know, I just encourage you all to really, really, really get in tune with yourselves um, to find, you know, even if it's that person that can help you through those things and, um, you know, and just grow from it because uh, we are not stagnant. We were not meant to be stagnant. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier that it requires a different level and a different version of ourselves every level that we get to. And um, so, so, you know, we just got to keep growing and going, y'all. So, um, you know, I love, I love, you know, my family. I love my community. Um, I love my people. And I'm just going to continue to fight and continue to push and continue to keep going for all of all of those things that I believe in um, until I can anymore. Thank you. Awesome. So before we close with our two questions, I definitely want to say thank you so much for carving out some time and speaking with me. And thank you, as I stated in the beginning, to be, you know, selected and, and um, you know, I don't take that very lightly because at the end of the day, you could be talking to anyone and um, for you to reach out to me and, and give me this opportunity and this platform, um, you know, which I know you're, you know, super popular throughout the state and the country and the world. And I just want to say thank you for this opportunity. It really means a lot to me. Thank you. Of course, you know I had to do it for my Haitians. <laughs> I had to. Right, right, I had to. So last two questions. To what do you attribute your success? My faith, my family, my friends, my true friends, my true mm. friends. Right. We got to say true friends, you know, like no fake friends. friends. <laughs> yeah, no fake friends. You know, there's only a handful of those. Mm -hmm. They know who they are. And then my family knows who they are. And my, um, my, my experience and my passion. And how do you define success? Passion, purpose, and principle. Um, you know, those are my my three P's of success. Um, if you can identify your passion, your purpose, excuse me, um, you know, we are calling, whatever it is that God called you to do on this earth. If you can make sure and ensure your passion behind that purpose, and if you maintain your ethical standards and your principles, whatever it is you decide to do, you will always be successful. 
It's not, it has, it doesn't have to do with economic status. It doesn't have to do with popularity. It comes from within. So if you can define your passion, your purpose, excuse me, if you can live with the passion of that purpose, and if you maintain your principles and never waver, you will be successful.